The following message is from the audio teaching library of the Briarwood Pulpit, a ministry of the Briarwood Presbyterian Church in Birmingham, Alabama. Our speaker is Dr. Harry Reeder, Senior Pastor of Briarwood Presbyterian Church. It is our hope and prayer that this message will equip and encourage you in your walk with Christ, and as a result, you will be used by our Lord as an instrument of change to further His kingdom and bring honor and glory to the name of Christ. Here now is our pastor-teacher, Harry Reeder. If you're able, please remain standing for the reading of God's Word. And if you'll turn with me to Matthew chapter 2, your copies of God's Word to Matthew chapter 2. We're back to this text this Sunday, but for a different purpose and a different focus in our study of the kings of Christmas. As you turn there to Matthew chapter 2, I want to remind you, I don't know whether you're looking around for a Christmas gift or not, but if you are, uh, the bookstore, at my request, has a number of options for you to have public, uh, private uh, worship with the Lord, your private uh, time with the Word of God, your devotional time, your quiet time, your time alone with God. Uh, we want to make, as a new year approaches, maybe it might be a time for refresh and renew, revive that uh, practice in your life. So we've got some um, instruments available. We've got a pamphlet that gives three different ways you can read through the Bible in a year. And I do commend that to you, reading through the Bible in a year, at least every five or seven years to kind of go the big scope. And secondly, we've got uh, two different um, read through the Bible in a year plans. Uh, Bibles, actually one year Bibles available, two different kinds. And then um, thirdly is the one I love to recommend. It's called Morning Exercises by Reverend William J., the great Puritan. I highly commend that to you. And then finally, um, the last thing, of course, that I always recommend is Table Talk. Uh, it's a great devotion from Ligonier uh, Ministries, and those would be the ones I would recommend. The bookstore is available to help you. Now, would you look with me at Matthew chapter 2 and verse 1? This is God's Word. God's Word is true, inspired, inerrant, and infallible. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he? who has been born king of the Jews. For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the peoples, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophets. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, 
and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now, when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child, and underline, to destroy him. And he arose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet out of Egypt. I call my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. <clears throat> and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. And she refused to be comforted because they were no more. Then Herod died. The grass withers, the flower fades, the word of the Lord abides forever. By his grace and mercy, may his word be preached for you. Please be seated. You can't miss the spirit of Christmas, can you? It's one of joy, joy to the world. Oh, come all you faithful. The uplifting Christmas carols, the the great statements of the incarnation bidding us to joy. It's it's ever there. Uh, this this incessant um, call to joy is is built on something absolutely astonishing. And that is the humiliation of Christ to save his people and the exaltation of our salvation. It's amazing, isn't it? Here's the king of kings, and he comes into this world not in a royal bassinet, but in a manger, a trough, an animal trough. Uh, not in a palace, but in a stable. Not in Rome, but Bethlehem, that was considered least and lowly by onlookers of the age, but not in the economy of God, as you just read. This is, um, this is one who is born not of fame, lineage of fame before others, but a forgotten line of, a forgotten line of kings, Mary and Joseph. Here is one that, um, is born and not attended with the festivals that should have accompanied the birth of a king, seemingly in our mind. No, it's one of humiliation, but that's not just in his birth. It will continue in his life, despised and rejected. It will continue all the way to the cross, where even the one who had declared, this is my son in whom I am well pleased, would remove his presence as the wrath of God for all the sins of all of his people, for all of eternity, was poured out upon him. And then humiliation of buried here is the humiliation of Christ, not by subtracting deity, but by the addition of humanity and the and the imputation of our sins against him who received them to pay for them in our stead. This savior so humbled to redeem us that we might be exalted by his grace through his Cleansing blood and perfect righteousness. Thus, joy to the world. The Lord has come. 
And then you not only have that drumbeat of joy and the humiliation and exaltation of Christ, but if you'll listen carefully, particularly today, please, there's something else sobering underneath it. And that which is underneath it and sobering is uh, it's captivating. It can be frightening, but it must be heard. Christmas is war. Christmas is a divine declaration of war and response to war. Christmas is life and death. Not only the life here but the life to come. Not only death here, but the eternal death of hell. Christmas is war. Many times I hear, and I have not so much this year, interestingly, but almost every year for the last number of years, it's, uh, isn't it, uh, the war on Christmas. <laughs> Whenever I hear that, and I understand the discussion that's going on, but the real, the, the real thing that we should know from a biblical world in life view is this. War on Christmas, it should not surprise us because Christmas is war. It is war. And perhaps we can see it clearly from what we come to today. And not just from this text, but how it runs through all of Scripture. Now, we have had this series, The Kings of Christmas, and I've asked you to, uh, in order to come to Christ Sunday next week, the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, I've asked you to look at some of the kings that are displayed for us in the nativity accounts that are found for us in uh, Matthew and Luke. And so we did the first one chronologically. It was Caesar Augustus, or history knows him as Gaius Octavius, his given name, uh, considered perhaps the greatest emperor in the history of Rome. He was uh, the one who followed on Julius Caesar's uh, steps and was known for many things, Pax Romana, the road systems, all that he did. But one of the things that the Bible records that he did that is affirmed in history is the administration of a census, a registration, a taxation for military purposes, for information, for administrative purposes, one that would rotate every 14 years. And in fact, the Bible records not only this, but a subsequent 14 year later, um, um, registration and uh, a rebellion that broke out because of it. This is something that he put in place. This emperor put it in place. And what was the what did it create? It created a moment where at the conclusion of Mary's pregnancy, the virgin has conceived and is about to give birth. This need to go and register arrived for Joseph and Joseph, her betrothed, uh, decided that this needed to be addressed. And so he now he could have gone by himself. We are aware of that in terms of surviving records of how this was administrated, but he decided not to likely out of his compassion. He didn't want to lead or have this child and all the ridicule and mockery that might be there in his absence. So he takes her on the 90 mile journey with him and arrives at Bethlehem. And coincidental to that is the fact that she then comes to give birth. But of course, there's nothing coincidental about it. This is the sovereign hand of God at work using the decree of Gaius 
Octavius, using the decision-making of a carpenter who loved his wife to bring her with him and to bring there to the fulfillment of Micah 5.2, that the Messiah would be born. Not only would the Messiah be from God's covenant people, Israel, the seed of Abraham, not only would the Messiah come by way of the tribe of Judah, not only would the Messiah specifically come from the family of Jesse, and through David, but that this Messiah would be born in the city of David, and that is Bethlehem. And so all of these converge to fulfillment. That's why Matthew keeps saying time and time again in his account, as it was written, are to fulfill what was spoken by the prophets. And so there is the hand of God fulfilling his word, and all the promises of God are yes and amen in Christ. Interestingly, isn't it? Here is the most powerful king we could argue that's ever existed. But the king of kings superintends rules and overrules in and through even his decrees. And it's not because Octavius is a pawn. No, he's a king. He is a real person. You don't have to diminish people's person and position for God to be sovereign. He uses carpenters and he uses kings because the heart of the king, the heart of the king is in his hands, king of kings. And he directs it wheresoever he wishes, even as he directs the waters to the sea. So what do we learn about this? Here's what we learn about it. That the birth of Jesus is real history. This is this text doesn't Luke doesn't start off once upon a time. This is real history, real places, real events, real. You can confirm them all with extra biblical sources as well. Real history, real event, real place. But here's something else you find out is that while the birth of Jesus is real history, real history is really his story. That's what that's why prophecy is nothing more than pre-written history. This is a sovereign God who rules and overrules and accomplishes his purposes. And the same God who promised he would come has also promised he's coming again. That also will be history one day. For God always fulfills his word. But the second thing that we looked at was another king. He's unnamed. He's a king not from the west like Octavius, but a king from the east. And his emissaries show up, magi. Now, some people would ask, Pastor, are these magi, are they actually kings? Don't we sing? We three kings of Orient are. Okay, I will, we don't know. They could be kings, but likely not because that term is not usually used to refer to a king, magi. Um, but could be, and if it was, you can be assured, three, three kings, nothing. There would have been a full entourage if they're all, if they're all uh, kings. And likely there was an entourage anyway, because I think what Magi means is exactly that guild that Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had been a part of, by the way, from the same area. And likely because they had been in the same area as the library of these regal scholars. That's what they were. They were regal scholars, philosophers, historians, astronomers, astrologists. And they were always studying. They had these massive libraries, these king, these, um, these advisors and counselors like our president's cabinet is what and so they not own and like the cabinet they not only would give counsel they could be a royal emissary and so here they come 
Why are they coming? Well, they're coming with a specific question. And they come to, to Israel and they go to the capital of Israel, Jerusalem. And with their question, we know why they come to Israel. We know why they come to the capital, because here's their question. Where is he that has been, that is born king of the Jews? Now, where would they have gotten that? Well, let me suggest the Pentateuch, which Daniel would have brought with him into that library. The same Daniel who served through two empires and five dynasties would have put that there. And this is some speculation on my part. But Numbers 24 is what they would have read that would say the star of Israel that would affirm the scepter of Judah. That is the king, when born, there would be a star. And so that is, I think, what they were reading. And then they saw this star. Now, I know what you're asking. What? Harry, what about that star? Well, there are seven possibilities. I'm not going to bore you with all seven of them. I will bore you with three of them because they're the three most likely that you're going to hear about. One is they're going to call upon the history that we do have from the from the Far East, mostly from Chinese history, of the presence of comets all around that time at the year 12, the year 10, the year 7, and the year uh, 6, and in the year 4. There are these comets that are... Maybe it was a comet. My only problem with that... and. I understand why people would would affirm that, but my only problem with that is that there is a word that they would have used for comet, and it wouldn't be the word that they are using that rightly is translated star. Well, I know the other one, and many of you right now are interested in it because you know this uh, tomorrow... Uh, after sunset, within an hour and a half, if you'll go look at the southwest sky, you're going to see something that could likely have been seen at that time. Because in the year 8 and in the year 6, uh, there was this, con- this confluence of Jupiter and Saturn. You can go see it. I saw it the other night. Now, it's going to get even better. In fact, it is going to be the brightest presentation of it since the 13th century. It occurs regularly at this time of year uh, throughout the years. And you can see it. You can take a look at it. And um, there are those that believe that's what it's referring to. But I, personally, I don't. I think it. Um, I, sorry, I'm, I'm not going to come up with anything brilliant for you. I'm just going to tell you, I think it was a star that God made for the purpose. I think it's a miracle, just like he made the fish for Jonah. I think it was a miracle. God used it. He used it to get their attention. So now watch this. Numbers 24:17. they knew, and the star became an affirmation. But what led them to Israel, to this place, with that question, was the word of God. Then when they got there, and this commotion... Hey, I, can you imagine when it showed up to Herod and he said, you know what, people, there's some, there's some guys that showed up out there. And I don't think they'd have said guys. Said, you know, I don't know what they'd have called them. But th- there's some guys that showed up out there. And boy, everybody's talking about them. They got this entourage with them. And they're asking, where is he born king of the Jews? Well, that got, that got uh, Herod's attention pretty quick. And so Herod then, he wants to see them. And then he also, he does two things. He calls for them. Then he calls for his scholars. 
and about it. And they give the same answer that you find in Luke. Oh, where is he born? He's going to be, if this is the king of the Jews, this is the Messiah, he'll be born in Bethlehem, Micah 5, 2, hundreds of years ago. That's where he'll be born. So he calls them in and uh, then he takes them and boy, beware of this. He takes them into his secret chambers. And when he gets them in the secret chambers, he tells them, now I want you to go search diligently. This is important because I want you to send word back to me when you find him because I want to worship him also. And uh, so they listened to him and they nodded in agreement and they went away. And now having heard, now watch this, having heard Micah 5, 2, guess what appears to affirm again is the star. Now, please notice, it's not the star that's the focus. It's the word of God and then God's providential affirmation. It's God's word that leads us. He uses providential affirmations and assurances. But it's God's word that led them. It's Numbers 24, affirmed by the star that led them to Israel. It's Micah 5, 2 that leads them to Bethlehem. And then they saw the star again, which, by the way, is a reason, another reason why. If this is a regular star or confluence of this thing's got an amazing orbit and it appears and disappears and it goes here. And then it's going to lead them down to a house in Bethlehem. But then they arrive, and when they arrive, the Bible says two things. I just read it for you. They, they, saw Mary, they saw Mary and the baby. But note the specificity. They, wor- they worshipped him. They worshipped him. Not Mary. Him. And then they gave their gifts to him. They didn't worship Mary, they didn't worship, worship, they didn't worship their gifts. They worshiped him. Although the gifts are really significant, gold, regal, incense, priest, myrrh, prophets, prophet, priest, and king. And by the way, they're also helpful because my guess is Joseph is going to need some help on the trip down to, uh, down to Egypt and back and over the years until he gets his business reestablished. And so you see all of that, but that where they focus is him. So, folks, here's the two marks. There are two marks when people come to Christ. They come on their way, and when they meet him who is the way, the truth, and the life, then they go, did you hear what it said? A different way. Here's the two things that mark out a believer. The love of the praise and worship of God. God-centered worship. With the people of God. Gathered with gifts of praise to that God, sacrificially and joyfully given. It marks out God's people. doesn't make them God's people. It marks them out. And then their loving obedience. When they meet him, they praise God for the way that they were brought, but they go a different way. They're marked by loving obedience. But this isn't the only king we look at today. This day we come to another one, Herod the Great. And I've just read a lot about him. Not everything about him but in the text, in the scripture, but something about him. Herod the Great. Now, Harry, why in the world do they call him Herod the Great? Well, it's not because he is some benevolent ruler that everybody remembers with great fondness. On the contrary. He's great for a number of reasons. First of all, he's not even a Jew. He's, an, he's, from, the, he's from the nation of Edom. He's an Edomian. And uh, he's only a king of the Jews because Caesar Augustus had appointed him for various political reasons. And so he is now king. He's got a number of sons. He's had a wife by the name of Marianne. 
And uh, one of the things he's great about is he's a builder. Now, he was the original inventor of stimulus programs, believe me. He had, I mean, when I take people to Israel and learning the Bible and the land of the Bible, everywhere we go, Herod built that. Herod built that. Herod built that. The Herodian, where he's buried, Herod built that. Or we go throughout Jerusalem, he built a hippodrome. He built two different kinds of amphitheaters. He built this beautiful park area where he dammed up and captured the Pool of Siloam uh, and built uh, this magnificent covering over it. Uh, he, um, he built palaces all over the place. In fact, he built a whole city. This pretty smart guy. He's there because a Caesar appointed him. So he went over to the Mediterranean. He built a port city. It's called Caesarea. Now, that's a pretty smart guy. You build a city, and then you what? You name it for the guy that put you in power. So that's called job security. And so he put, he put that in there, and he named it Caesarea by the sea. And as Caesarea by the sea is established, uh, he built himself a palace there at Caesarea by the sea. And he built a nut, he built two more palaces in Jericho, built these big gardens. He built a palace for his mother. He built a palace for his mother-in-law. He built a pa- palace for his wife. He built Masada. I can go on and on and on. I just don't have time to give them all to you. He was a great builder. He also, his evil was great as well. You're going to read that he killed all the children in Bethlehem under two years of age. Not to be irreverent or inappropriate. That was nothing for him. He had already killed three of his sons. Who he thought was conspiring against him. And he killed his wife, Mary Ann, because he thought she was helping them. He was, uh, he was known to have killed generals and, and uh, officials. He was known to kill large groups of people, particularly up in the, in the various regions, including the Galilee. And when he killed his son, Caesar Augustus made this remark. It's better to be a pig in the household of Herod than one of his sons. So safer to be a pig than one of his sons in his household. But that's not all that we know about him. We know that he was a narcissist. We know he was self-absorbed. And we know also, just as I read to you, about a year at the most, maybe two He died after the birth of Jesus. But when he sent the wise men, when he sent the wise men, uh, he would sent them with the notion that I want to worship him. So be sure and find him and be sure and let me know. Well, the Lord intervened to protect them because not only did he want to destroy them, but likely he would want to destroy these wise men. And so that he protected them and sent them on their way. And then he realized he's tricked. And so he goes and takes the date they give him. He said, I'm going to make sure and get underneath this. And he kills all the male children to try to do, do what? To destroy the Messiah. That's his purpose. That's why I ask you to underline it. To destroy it. War. And casualties. And violence. Surrounds the moment. By the way, when he dies, he wants to make sure nobody ever rivals him after he dies. So he 
he with Augustus made sure that his three living sons would divide up the kingdom. So there would be Herod Archelaus who would take over Jerusalem and Judea and Bethlehem. He perhaps was even worse than his father. So Joseph and Mary would not come back. I guess they were thinking about coming back to Bethlehem, but they decided not to because Archelaus was there. They went up to Galilee where Herod Antipas ruled. And then there was a third son who ruled in the northern part of Israel. His name was Herod Philip. By the way, he learned from his daddy, too. You know what he did? He learned from his daddy, and he built a city for the Caesar that allowed him to stay in power. The new Caesar's name was Tiberius. And so he named, he built a city for him. He called it Caesarea, and then put his name, Caesarea Philippi, up at Mount Hermon. Then... uh, Then you come down to Herod Antipas at Galilee, and he builds a city for Tiberias and actually calls it Tiberias. It was built during the days of Jesus. So here is all of this that's working out of this evil rule. And the three tetrarchs left after Herod the Great. And it's in that context that Jesus will grow. Something else happened. Herod Archelaus was so evil that even Augustus could not tolerate him. So he sacked him. And he decided, I'm not going to give Jerusalem and Judea to these other two guys. I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to keep control of it. I'm going to put a procurator. I'm going to put a procurator there and a governor. His name will be Pontius Pilate, who will occupy the palaces of Herod. You remember that secret chamber, that court? That's likely 33 years later where Jesus will be brought to stand trial by Pontius Pilate. So here are all of these things coming together. So what is it that is abundantly clear? Joy to the world. The Lord has come. See his humiliation to save us from our sins and our exaltation for his glory. And then his exaltation As he is risen from the dead and ascended into heaven. And he will come again to judge the living and the dead. But none of this is new. Herod the Great is just another one in the line. So let me give you a takeaway. Here's the takeaway. The real war on Christmas is the war at the first Christmas which began before Christmas and which continues after Christmas until Christ returns. This is a war that is the result. Christmas is the fulfillment of a divine declaration of war against the cosmic rebellion of Satan, the angels and all who follow him. In opposition to the God of glory. Who say we don't live to glorify him and enjoy him forever. Everything exists for our glory. And we will do as we please and he will not reign over us. That's the war that Jesus came to deal with. With his enemies. And our enemies. Satan. Sin. Death. The grave. He has come 
to defeat those enemies. And that's already, that is abundantly clear in the expanse of Scripture. Would you take and go with me to one passage with me? Would you go to Revelation chapter 12? Would you go with me to Revelation chapter 12? So go back to Revelation chapter 12. And look with me in this summation of the history of the world through the apocalyptic literature and the apocalyptic language. When Satan makes his appearance, he appears as a serpent in the garden. But in the apocalyptic literature, his rebellion is cast beyond a serpent, but as the red dragon. Look with me in chapter 12 and verse 1. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and on his head seven diadems. His tail swept away. A third of the stars of heaven. That's probably referring to the angelic host that followed him into his rebellion. One third of all of the angelic host. And they cast him to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child. One is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God. And to his throne, the resurrection and the ascension of the Messiah. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. And here is the scope of history. Right here. In the garden, Satan comes as a serpent. He has three snares he uses. Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life. And he brings the woman the temptation. The tempter comes disguised as a serpent. And the tempter lies about God's word. Lies about what the eating of the forbidden fruit would do. And then comes the temptation. And when she saw that the tree was good for food... The lust of the flesh, appetites. That it was a delight to her eyes, the lust of the eyes. And desirable to make her wise to be like God. Boastful pride of life. And she took from its fruit and she ate, gave to her husband with her. And he ate. Then comes the curse of sin. And as the curse falls upon Adam... Falls upon Eve, falls upon the creation, and then in Genesis three fourteen through sixteen to the serpent. And to the serpent he says, "You shall crawl on your belly." In other words, the sovereign hand of God will be upon Satan, and the woman shall have a seed. The seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman will be in conflict. But the woman's seed, that's the anticipation of the virgin birth, because women 
do not have seed. Here is the promise of a seed to a woman who will give birth and her seed shall crush the head of the serpent while his heel will be bruised. The humiliation of Christ and the bruising of a heel. But that's not a lethal blow. The lethal blow is delivered to Satan. That he will be defeated and then ultimately destroyed. So what does Satan do with that curse? God has declared war. Satan, in his rebellion, does not surrender. And you see life and death in the very next chapter. Here comes Cain who was birthed through Eve, having heard the promise of God, you can almost see her hope in her naming of her firstborn. Cain, meaning I have gotten a man-child from the Lord. Is this the promised one? Satan's not omniscient. So what happens in worship? Abel is affirmed and Cain rises up and he slays Abel. The war is on. Well, obviously, I don't have time in my minutes to take you through the Old Testament. Because not only will this woman be understood as one woman chosen through which will come the virgin, but it also is referring to God's covenant people. His covenant people are his bride. So he is going to bring his Messiah through his covenant people of a particular tribe, Judah, through a particular family. And he's going to bring this one here. And what will Satan do? Satan makes war to devour the child. And makes war against the woman. So you don't have to wait to Herod. There's Cain. Again, time and time again, I'll just give you another one from the Old Covenant. You see the stirring of God's hand to deliver his people from the bondage of Egypt. And he's going to raise up a mediator. His name will be Moses. But interestingly, as the moments are coming... To this deliverer comes a genocidal decree from Pharaoh to kill all the male children, the firstborn male. Then comes a genocidal assault against male children. Again, throughout all of the history of Israel, you can see it time and time again. We wage war against principalities and powers, rulers and forces of darkness. Now you see it in the days of Herod. As Herod again would become the next in a line of apostate rulers who would seek to destroy him. But Herod died. Jesus lives. Ascended. King of kings. And Lord of lords. But don't miss it. Folks, listen to me carefully. I love Christmas. I love hallelujah choruses. I love joy to the world. I love, oh, come all you faithful. But we're in a war. 
People ask me all the time, Pastor, when you talk about leadership, how come you don't use business leaders? Well, I think there's some great things to learn from business leaders. But I gravitate toward military leaders because I want us to understand we're in a war. That's where we are. Now, what the Bible also wants you to understand is when Herod struck struck out, he really struck out. Herod died. Jesus lives. Jesus dies for our sins. Jesus rises again. And the one who humbled himself, therefore, is highly exalted at the right hand of God the Father. So this one who is exalted is the one who exalts us from the humiliation of our sin through his redeeming work and his humiliation that we might be exalted with him when we put our trust in him. But till we go to be with him, Satan, who was, now listen to me carefully, was defeated at the cross, death defeated at the cross, hell defeated at the cross, the grave defeated at the cross, but not yet destroyed. Satan, sin, death, hell, and the grave will be destroyed at the second coming, which is one more reason to say, come quickly, Lord Jesus. And just as God's people in the old covenant were delivered with the onslaught of Pharaoh against the children, but God delivered them and he could not kill Moses. And Moses was sustained and Moses led the people out into a wilderness. So we, the people of God, have one greater than Moses. Moses was just pointing to this, who takes us not from the bondage of slavery, but from the slavery to our sin and delivers us from its persuasion, delivers us from its penalty. Penalty, delivers us from its power, deliver, is delivering us from its practice, and will deliver us from, our, from its presence. And we are now still in a sin-cursed world. We're in a wilderness. But just as they went through a wilderness sustained by the presence of God to a promised land, we go through this world. We're in the world, but not of the world. And in the world you have tribulation. But take courage. I have overcome the world. He does not cause the warfare to dissipate. He just makes you more than conquerors through him who loves us. And he is the one that sustains us. So if you're a believer, you're in a war. If you're a parent, you're trying to raise your child for Jesus. You're in his crosshairs. Now, if you just want to raise your child, go get a degree, go get a great job and go buy a lot of things, get two houses, do that. He'll leave you alone. But if you actually want your child to know the saving power of Jesus Christ, and you raise your children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, you're in his crosshairs. If you want your business to honor Jesus Christ, you're in his crosshairs. If you want to be a witness for Christ on a team, in a fraternity, in a classroom, you're in his crosshairs. And it's a war. Here's what I want you to remember, though. The war's been won. But get in the battle. Stay in the fight. Don't abandon the fight. And yes, you're going to get wounded. But stay in the fight. He wants to... Here's what Satan loves. He's got snares, lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, boastful pride of life. He's got servants. He loves to use rulers who are intoxicated with power, like Herod and Pharaoh and um, Artaxerxes. You just start naming them. And he loves, of course, to use the doctrine of demons in the demonic world. He loves to use false teachers, religious leaders, false preachers, false leaders, teaching a false message. He's got servants. 
He's also got strategies. He loves to intimidate. He loves to imitate. He loves to infiltrate. By the way, you can see it, can't you? Not only in the garden, you can see it right here in Herod, can't you? You see Herod? He wants to infiltrate. Oh, I'm a worshiper. He wants to imitate. Yeah, be sure and give me work because I'm like you. I want to go give gifts and worship him. No, he did. He wanted to destroy him. So he, so here, and, and then he tries to do what? He decrees death. He tries to intimidate. He infiltrate. Listen, Satan does this all the time. He loves to infiltrate the fellowship of a church with gossip and slander and chaos and, and ungodly divisions. He loves to infiltrate the leadership of a church with false teachers, false preachers, and false leaders. He loves to infiltrate. He loves to imitate the tares instead of the wheat. He loves to do all of those things. And he not only loves to imitate and infiltrate, he also loves to intimidate. Because he knows if he can make you afraid, he'll stop you. He knows that fear paralyzes. That's why the lion roars. That's why Satan roars. You know, I, listen, I, I want to be careful here. But do you remember when Jesus got in a boat and he went in the boat with his disciples over to the other side, the place called Galilee of the Gentiles that was infested with demonic activity and they meet two demons. They cast legion of demons out of them. They go into the pigs. You remember that story? Does anybody, have you ever read what happens in the Gospels before they get on the other side of the sea? There's a storm that is so unbelievable. That even these veteran fishermen are scared they're going to perish. Jesus, don't you care? And he commands the winds and the waves. And they say, what kind of man is this? Well, they're about to find out he's going to command the demons of darkness to go over the cliff into the abyss. But don't miss what happens. Satan does, is not omniscient, but he certainly can sense Jesus is headed over there where I am welcome. Demonic activity in this Hellenistic place, previously Jewish, now now dominated by paganism. Jesus is headed there and all of the winds and the waves would seek to stop him. But he is sovereign and he commands them to stop. And he brings peace to his people who stay in the boat and trust him. Don't you care that we perish? He said, you're not going to perish. I'm with you. Even though you die, yet you shall live. I have won the victory. And I am the one that you put your trust in. And the demonic fury to stop you. That's what Satan wants to do. He, He has given his church the message and the mission. And we're on the march. And then he wants to bring infiltrate false teachers, infiltrate division, infiltrate distrust, infiltrate all of these things that would that would cause us to get off a mission, that would get us away from the fight and away from the battle. He is constantly trying to infiltrate the leadership to false teaching and false preaching and leaders who lead the flock to themselves and not to Jesus and for Jesus. He is constantly at work and he works in the world with a State religious leaders and and um, arrogant rulers in the world. He is constantly doing that. Now you can get fearful, or you can you can walk carefully, courageously, and with conviction. 
Christos Victor. Christ is Victor. Do you know why now he says to his disciples, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it? Why would he tell us that if Satan's not going to try to prevail? But he has assured us of the victory. And the best example I know, I'm out of time, so I'll, I'll just give you this and then close in prayer. The best example I know is all the way back uh, to World War II, a two-front war. And, and, and in my study of World War II, there are two moments that really strike me comparable to the Christian life in this matter. And number one was... Those boys that landed on that beach and got up on the heights of Normandy. Militarily and strategically, once they got on that beach and once they got up those cliffs, Hitler was done. He was done. That didn't mean there wasn't going to be fights hamlet by hamlet, village by village and hedgerow by hedgerow and casualties and medals of honor and everything. But that war was won right then. We get to sign the armistice later. But the implications of it would be fought out. When Jesus came out of that grave and ascended into heaven, we win. Now we've got to go nation by nation and rescue the perishing and care for the dying. And Satan wants to stop you. With intimidation, infiltration, and imitation. And just like Herod, he is certainly willing to lie. Oh, let me worship him. He is certainly willing to, just like Satan in the garden, the disguise of the serpent, the deceit, the discouragement. He is constantly using these schemes and strategies. He is constantly working to do that. But you have to keep your eyes fixed on Jesus, filled with the word of God, surrendered to the spirit of God. And you've got to stay in the fight. Don't get intimidated. Don't even let pandemics, don't let pandemics paralyze you. Now listen, folks, you've heard me. I've, I've attempted to walk prudently before the Lord, but I refuse to live in fear. Absolutely refuse to live in fear, because with fear comes paralysis. And then we're off mission, and then we're off message, and then we're out of ministry. So whether it is... The diseases of this world, the demonic activity in this world, the declension of the culture, the battlefields are all around us. But Christ has won the war and he's called you into the battle and he's given you a mission. Evangelize, disciple and train up God's people and send them into the battle. And don't, don't retreat. One of the movies I've watched time and time again is Lone Survivor. Just trying to learn from it the principles that are there in the text, both positively and negatively. I don't necessarily recommend it. You have to be pretty careful with it for various reasons. But the one thing I do read when I'm in that thing is to fulfill their mission, which they were resolutely committed to do it. There was going to be a battle, and there was a battle. There was a battle after battle. And everybody gets hit. Even lone survivor gets hit. But every time they're in that battle and they get hit, there's two questions. Are you hit? Then the next question. Are you still in the fight? We stay in the fight even when we get hit. And we don't stop by his intimidation. We are aware of his infiltration. 
And we are not fooled by his imitation. For eyes are fixed on Jesus. Christos. Victor. Satan is defeated. Herod dead. Jesus lives. Let's pray. Father, thank you that uh, you, even in the midst of a narrative of Scripture that is filled with amazing grace and the humiliation of Christ to achieve and secure our salvation and exaltation, even with all the resounding notes and fervor of joy. Jesus, thank you so much that you also let us know the Christian life is war. This notion, well, I'm in a spiritual warfare is actually that's our life and the world will have tribulation. If there's an absence of warfare, that's just a moment, a respite. So would you please help your people put on the armor of Christ, grab hold of the weapons of the spirit and keep their eyes fixed on their king, victorious Jesus. Who will rule and reign forever. Jesus, we praise you for that you have defeated your enemies. Even when we were your enemies, you defeated us and brought us from the chains of oppression of our sin to the liberty of salvation in Christ. While we were yet enemies, Jesus saved us. And Father, I thank you that you use us to save others and you call your people in your church to resolutely in the midst of the battle, not shrink. Not go to the sidelines, not retreat, and not go fight in the locker room. But you call us to the field of battle, knowing the war is won in Jesus. So help your people. Help me, Father, as a pastor. Help us as leaders to set the pace. Equip your people. And lead on, O King Victorious, the day of March, not retreat, the day of March has come. In Jesus' name, amen. You have been listening to a message by Harry Reeder, Senior Pastor of Briarwood Presbyterian Church in Birmingham, Alabama. For more information on the resources available through Briarwood Presbyterian Church, or for more information on the teaching ministry of Pastor Reader, visit us at briarwood.org or call 205-776-5200.